All right, was that not a blessing? Amen? Amen. I hope you enjoyed that at home as well. How many of you have got your Bibles with you this morning? How many of you have got your Bibles with you this morning? All right, good. I asked you last week, if you would, to bring your written copy. I know some of you have got your electronic copy, but uh, there's just something about holding this book. There's something about having it in your hands. And so I just want to encourage you uh, to uh, bring your Bible to church. You can use your electronics for everything else, but when you come to church, bring your Bible. All right. Um, I've started a series a few weeks ago, uh, kind of entitled, Don't Check Your Brain at the Door. You know, we're being told in this world that to be a Christian is to be foolish. To be a Christian is to uh, stop thinking and stop being intelligent, to be a follower uh, of of things that you don't know to be true. Well, I I take offense to that, to be honest with you. Um, I take great offense to the fact that um, I put a lot of thought into what I do and how I do it and why I do it and uh, how I live my life. And so when I think about the fact that um, somebody's telling me to be a Christian, I have to be foolish or I have to uh, check my brain at the door, tells me that they don't understand Christianity. And they don't understand what the Word of God says. So last week we talked about uh, uh, the, the, the preciousness of the Holy Scriptures. Today, I want to give you some evidence of the Holy Scripture. I want to take you through some things that will remind us that uh, this book not only is the inspired Word of God, but it's a book in which we can trust, and there's some reasons why we can trust it. So if you will, stand with me as we uh, turn our attention to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Now, if you kind of get lost somewhere along the way and you say, well, I wish I'd have followed what he was saying better. There are some outlines out there if you just want to grab them as you leave. Uh, If you hadn't grabbed one already, I do provide a few outlines for you to follow along uh, so that you'll have that in your hands. So uh, 2 Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, shares with us in chapter 3 some words that I want us to take about the scripture. Uh, In 2 Timothy chapter 3, let's start at verse 14. And he says to young Timothy, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good work. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the the truth of the Scripture. Thank you for the power of the Scripture. Thank you for the light. Thank you for the the, the foundation that we find in the Scripture. And today, Lord, as we take our time to look at why we should believe that the Bible is true, I pray that you would move me out of the way and hide me behind the cross, that it not be my word, but let the Word of God speak unto us. And for those that are critics, those that do not believe, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to a place of conviction. And understanding, I pray there'd be something said today that would cause them to think a little bit more and to cause them to dig a little deeper so that they might find the, the, the holy scriptures are something in which is worth investing our lives in. Lord, now I pray that you would just take this time we pray in Jesus' name. Let the Spirit move. Amen. You may be seated. 
I've got a question for you this morning. Do you trust the Bible? Do you trust the Bible? If so, why? You see, it's real good and real easy to say, yes, I trust, but why? Why do you trust it? Can you defend why you trust it? Um, there are some of us that are going to say, sure, uh, we have, uh, as we look around and as we talk to people, there are those that uh, will say, yeah, uh, I'm all in, no questions. And maybe others might uh, say, I don't think the Bible is true at all. But however, many people fall into a more moderate characterization. They call, they find themselves in the middle ground, the middle category where they say, yeah, I believe the Bible is God's word, but I have some doubts. I have some questions. I, I, I've got some things that I'm not sure of. There, there's nothing wrong with, with saying, I believe the Bible is true, but there's questions. That just gives us a desire and a want to to learn, to seek a little bit more. Um, here's what I want to share with you today. First of all, and, and this is just kind of the opening, so hang on, we got a lot to cover today. The Bible is a unique book in that it's made up of 66 books written by 40 people in three continents, in three languages, over 1600 year period. It is consistent throughout and tells the history of a chosen people whom have appointed to bring about the Messiah. The Bible's influence extends not only to one individual heart, but also in the shaping of nations. It is full of wisdom, it is full of truth, it is the most published book in all of the world. It also contains some amazing facts. Did you know that Methuselah lived to be 969 years old according to Genesis chapter 5 and verse 27? A man was spoken to by a donkey. Now, I've been called a donkey many times, but I've never been spoken to by a donkey. But in Numbers 22, there was a man that was spoken to by a donkey. The sun stood still for a whole day in Joshua chapter 10, verse 13, as the children of Israel were battling a battle. And the ocean was parted as when Moses put his staff into the water. A storm was calm when Jesus was awoken from the back of the boat and stood up and said, Peace, be still. And that's found in, in, in the, the Gospels. Uh, it's scientifically accurate in that it says that the earth, before we knew about the earth, is suspended into nothing, according to Job 26, verse 7. It also says the existence of ocean currents in Psalms chapter 8. And then it also reminds us that the stars are innumerable in Genesis 15, 5. Scientists today, every time they think that they've figured out how many stars there are, they find that there is a new galaxy out there with all of these things that they didn't know was there. It teaches some amazing things as well. It teaches that God created the universe out of nothing, that he made the heavens and the earth, and he formed man, Adam, and Eve from the dirt of the ground. He tells us that there is a devil and a demonic forces that are uh, living and forceful in the world. It teaches that there is a worldwide flood that God caused the languages of the world to be dispersed. It says that there will be a new heaven and a new earth when Jesus comes again. Amen? Amen. It teaches that there's going to be a judgment day where all people will stand before the Lord and give an account for their lives. They will have to answer for why they believed or did not believe. In short, the Bible is unlike any other book in the world. It assumes its own validity. It does not defend itself. It simply states what it is that is true and what is not. The Bible is either a joke or it's true. 
You either believe what it says or you reject what it says. It calls you to be hot or cold and calls you to examine yourself before the holy pages and before the holy Lord. It points out to to us and proclaims to us what we need and what we need to get rid of in our lives. The Bible, the, the, the very book that God has given to us is about Jesus. It talks about Jesus' uh, uh, life. It talks about where He came from and where He was gone and when He's coming back. As a matter of fact, as we're going to talk today, we're going to see that the Bible talks about Jesus uh, as He looks at His point of view of Scripture. And then we're going to look at five different things, five different lines of evidence that we can look at for the, rea- uh, the, the reliability of the Bible. So let's consider why we should believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God this morning. First of all, let's look at what the Bible says about how Jesus looks at Scripture. The Bible says that Jesus had a particular view of Scripture. It's interesting to me that there are many people who who say they will trust in Jesus for salvation, but kind of look down their nose, uh, so to speak, at the way that uh, He views Scripture. Jesus, I believe that when He comes to what it takes uh, uh, and tells us what it takes for us to go to hell but, and what it takes to not go to hell and go to heaven, but Jesus, I'm not sure I believe what you say about miracles. I'm not sure I believe about what you say about other things. For I've been told and I've been taught that, that God didn't create everything, but evolution is the truth and that we, we, we came from nothing. I'm not sure about all those miracle things either. I'm not sure uh, that, that I can believe the Bible when it talks about a, a miraculous event as this, the, the, the sun stopping for an entire day. But let me just remind you, my friends, if miracles are not true, then Jesus did not raise from the dead. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, we have no hope of salvation. If we're trusting in Jesus, we must also believe in the miracles and and what He has said in the Word. Whether intentionally or not, holding a different view of Scripture than Jesus is what's creating the problem of a wishy-washy world and a wishy-washy church. The church has to come together to believe that this book is God's Word, Jesus' Word to us. And if we don't, then that's where we have our problem. Jesus taught that the Scripture was all about Him. Jesus, from from the beginning of His ministry, pointed back to the very realities of that Scripture from the very beginning to the very end talks about Him. Jesus taught that Scripture actually was about His life and what His life meant from the Old Testament point of view all the way through the end of the New Testament point of view. However, we see in in Luke chapter 24 and verse 25, Jesus says to his disciples, Then he spake unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he said unto them, These are the words which I speak unto you while I was yet with you, that the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. When Jesus answered the questions of many of his skeptics, as to how that he responded to, the, to the, the, the things that he was challenged with. Almost always, Jesus had a, a certain way of responding. And he would say something to this effect. Haven't you read? Haven't you heard? 
Haven't you seen? Don't you know the scripture and what it says? He expected his disciples to know that the Old Testament was about him. And he expected us to know that too. And he expects us to know that the New Testament is the same. It's all about him. Everything before the cross was leading up to the resurrection. Everything after the resurrection is in the light of the cross and the resurrection. It's a focal point, the center point of biblical history. As a matter of fact, our dating system is all surrounded around it. But a foundational level is that Jesus teaches that Scripture is about Him. If Jesus teaches that Scripture is about Him, shouldn't we also consider Jesus? Maybe you got a point here. The Bible is about you, and we ought to be talking about you. So the second thing I want you to see is that Jesus taught that Scripture is the Word of God. Not only did He say that Scripture talks about me, it points to me, Jesus said also the scripture is the word of God. Jesus is consistently getting picked on and poked at and with questions by the religious leaders of his day. They were trying to find something that they could twist up, something that they could turn up, something that they could trip him up with. All too often he responded to them, haven't you read, don't you know the scripture? You're supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the country. And yet you don't even know what the scriptures say? How come they should trust you when you don't even know what you're talking about? In Matthew chapter 22, um, this is what happens when this happens again. The Sadducees, one of the religious leaders uh, of the groups at that time, asked a question of Jesus about marriage and death. Here's how he responds in part. He says, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? Now, let me just read that again for those of you that are slow at uh, catching things, <laughs> like me. All right. Haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? Now, let me tell you what it says. And if you don't believe that's what it says, go to Matthew chapter 22, verse 31. He calls him back to the scripture. But isn't it an odd kind of question that he asks? Jesus says, haven't you read what was spoken? He doesn't say, haven't you read what was written? He doesn't say, haven't you heard what was spoken? Jesus is, is asking a particularly pointed question here because he wants them to understand that the written word of God was before it was written was the spoken word of God. And therefore it was written because God spoke it. And now look at what he says. He, he, he kind of, he goes, haven't you read what was spoken? What he's getting at here is the idea that scripture is the word of God. It's the word to us. And if God has spoken something, it most certainly is true. For God cannot lie. God cannot err. And since God's word is the Bible and the Bible does not err, it makes sense to me that it contains no mistakes. So the word that was spoken is the word that was written. I hope that you see here that is while Jesus is teaching us that the scripture is about him, he also says it is the word of God. That's something Paul picks up in, in our text this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, all scripture... All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, 
for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I want to focus on that beginning statement for a minute. I want to focus on the fact that it says to us, and Jesus teaches this, Paul picks it up and he reteaches it to us, all scripture is inspired by God. Now the Bible was written not in English for all of you that think that it was written in English. No, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was often uh, written in Greek and uh, uh, then translated um, into English. Now, the Greek word here that is used for inspired is actually a word that Paul made up. Now, I just got to make this statement. Uh, my family has accused me for the last 30-some years of preaching that I make up words during my sermon. I've been telling them they need to write a dictionary because these words will come to light one day. They will be important. Just like the Apostle Paul, he made up a word that was not there to make a point about something that we need to know today. And what he says is he takes two words and he puts them together, a word that was not normally used but made sense that God breathed. He took the two words and he put them together that the word of God, the inspired word in which we get today, is God breathed that word. So for all of you that have heard me make up words, write them down. They're going to come important someday. All right, and you can write a dictionary. All right, so Paul makes up this new word, and it's saying to us that the word of God is God's word that he breathed, and then he put them together. Paul's idea here is to remind us um, how this kind of odd combination makes sense today. Now, what he is saying is that when we understand what it means to be God breathed, what I want you to do is everybody put your hand in front of your face and then blow. You feel your, you feel your air? Now, now, here's what I've learned. Not that it might smell bad, but don't, we won't go there. Here's what I've learned. That if you get real close to somebody, you kind of get real close to their face, you feel their breath. Now, listen, uh, that's either an awkward moment or a very intimate moment, okay? For the Word of God, it's an intimate moment. Now listen, here's why I say it's an intimate moment. Because we go back all the way to the book of Genesis, and what we find is that the Bible says that God created man, Adam, and then he breathed life into him. He got close enough to his creation that he breathed life into him. And then... It goes on to say that not only did he breathe life into them, but he breathed the word of God so that we might know him. You see how intimate it is? That this idea that we feel God's breath in the word of God. Scripture is that way. And then Jesus goes on to teach that not only is scripture all about him, is scripture is about the word of God, but scripture contains true history. Jesus teaches us that true history can be found in Scripture. This is where some people start to get a little edgy in their seat. This is where they start to go, oh, preacher, you're kind of, you know, you're, you're pushing the envelope there. Well, listen, Jesus made a very important statement that if we don't understand it, if we don't believe it, puts our whole foundation in trouble. 
Jesus told his disciples when he was talking about his own death and resurrection, he made a statement. He said, just as uh, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, I shall be in the belly of the earth for three days, and then I shall rise again. Now, Jesus was making an assumption, of course, that, that they knew literally knew that Jonah was a real man who was swallowed by a real fish and that spent three days in the belly of a fish. That they believed it. And he said, just as Jonah was true, I tell you the truth, so will I. Just as that. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, there's another passage where Jesus had been questioned by the religious leaders. And let's look at his response. Once again, he starts with, haven't you read? And then he says, have you not read that he which made them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and the twain shall be one flesh. He's quoting back from Genesis. He's saying, haven't you read? Don't you know that Adam and Eve were real people? The world wants us to believe that Adam and Eve are simply just some mystical ideology of uh, of the creation of humanity. No, they were real people put in a real garden who made a real mistake and got kicked out of that real garden. Okay? They were real people. They were our ancestors. They were made like us. Or we are made like them. And now Jesus is making that statement to tell us this is fact. Now, I know that there are those in this world that want people to believe that evolution is true, that life and human life came from goo through the zoo to you. I don't buy it. Jesus didn't leave that as an option. He simply said, no, God created them male and he created them female and we should not change it. We are created in his image. And when he makes us a male, we need to stay a male. When he makes us a female, we need to stay a female. He created us. We did not create ourselves. And therefore, we must stand on the Word of God. There's so much more that I could tell you about what Jesus said about the Scripture. But I need to transition. um, The singers took up too much of my time. So, Scripture, I've got to move along. All right? I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and it was like eight pages and I trimmed it down to six and that's as low as I could go. So hang on. I want to change directions just for a few minutes and talk to you about five evidences. Five evidences we can find uh, about the, the scripture that we can have that will help us to know that there is a reliability to the Holy Scripture. First of all, I want to go all the way back. I want to go back to the early evidences. The early evidences. Did you know that there are um, um, early evidences of, of, the, uh, of the Scripture? As a matter of fact, there are over 5,800 or so or partial copies of the Greek New Testament. And just to refresh you, to remind you that the Bible was not written in English. That what you're holding it was not the original. It was a translation of the original. All right, it is written in Greek, it is the original. And there are 
over 5,800 Greek manuscripts that were written just after the death of Christ. And we'll talk about that as we go along. All right, so an original was written, and then it was sent off to somebody, and they would read it to their group, they would copy it, and then they would send it off to another group so they could have it, and they would copy it and send it off, and that's how the Word of God was spread in those days. And then eventually, they were all compiled and bound together so that we would have the early Scriptures. Now, in fact, we have parts of Mark, Acts, Romans, 1 Timothy, 2 Peter, James, which date back to A.D. 50 to A.D. 70. Now, let me tell you what that means for those of you that don't understand it. All right, That means that 20 to 40 years after the death of Jesus, during that time when Jesus walked the earth, just 20 to 40 years after, we have the written, compiled Word of God, the Gospels, we have the letters, we have the testimonies of these things. Now, that might sound like a long time for you, and you might say, well, a lot could happen in those 20 to 40 years. All right, for a person who wants to say that the New Testament is just a cleverly made up story, let me ask, would people know what uh, uh, something that happened back in the 90s that was as significant as the resurrection? I want to ask you this morning, would, would people know uh, something that dramatically happened back in the 90s that would, that would be noteworthy? Why would they know? Because guess what? There's people in this room. Raise your hand if you were alive in the 90s. Okay. All right. So we are eyewitnesses to everything that took place in the 90s. 30, 40 years ago, we were there. Okay. So we're eyewitnesses. If it would have took place and somebody would have wrote about it, we would be able to say, no, that's not how it happened. No, no, no. They're, they're making that up. We can't stand for that. In this case, we have original manuscripts that were written while there were eyewitnesses still alive that could say, no, that's not how it happened, but they didn't. They said, yes, that's exactly how it happened. All right? So in one talk show called The View some time back, The View tossed out a statement, and it said something like this. It said, well, we can't trust the Bible because it's been translated and translated and translated over 65 times. Not true, view. Let me tell you, it's been translated from the original. It's been going back to the originals that are, are accurate because they are held by eyewitnesses. Now, let's go a little bit further. More than that, there is lots more evidence. Remember I said there were 5,800 Greek manuscripts? All right. All right. If you include the Latin and the Coptic and the Syriac, uh, their number goes anywhere from 20,000 to 30,000 original copies. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of evidence early on in the history of the Bible. Now, Let's go to what I was talking about, eyewitnesses. Eyewitness evidence. Now we've got the early translations that were written down 20 to 40 years while the eyewitnesses were still alive. So what do eyewitnesses have to say about the validity of the scripture? 
Luke says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which was from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Luke understood that when he set out to write an orderly account of what Jesus did in those days, he needed to talk to people that were actually there. Luke went out and he found eyewitnesses and he spoke to them about what was going on. Luke understood the importance of that account. So he, he spoke to eyewitnesses. You know, when something happens, what do we normally ask? Were you there? Did you see it? Are you just carrying on somebody else's conversation or did you actually see that happen? You know, after the earthquake, I talked to a lot of people and they said, I said, were you there? Did you feel it? Did, you, did, did it shake you? You know, because it's one thing for me to say, I, uh, the earth was shaking under my feet and everybody else goes, Where? Wasn't in my house. But when I could say, did you feel it? Did you feel it? Were you there? Yeah, they were there. They understood the idea. And so it was with Luke. He went out and he asked him, what were you there? Were you there? Did you see it? Did you hear it? What is it? Luke also records Peter saying, God has raised Jesus to life and we were all witnesses of this fact. Peter ultimately goes on to die for his own convictions. Something uh, that uh, um, we'll talk about in just a little bit. He says, uh, Peter also does in 2 Peter, he says, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories. Okay? Peter wants you to know, I am not following some clever invented story. I was there. They were eyewitnesses. Now you may say, well, why should we believe them? That's a good question. Why should we believe them? Um, the Bible says it, so I believe it, but if you don't want to take that, let me just kind of help you out a little bit. Well, when you take an eyewitness's account of something, there are certain things that you want to do. You want to ask them about locations, and you want to ask them about certain people of that time. You want to ask them about timelines, and you want to see how close they are to the actual events that you know, without a doubt, were true. And so, when we read the scripture, we find that as they are writing these accounts, they give accurate accounts of people, places, and cultural things that were happening at that particular time that make sense that they were eyewitnesses to the events. Alright? So, they gave roads and they gave information. They got obscure and remote customs correct when they talk about them. You're only going to get those things right if you can, that you, things that you claim if you were actually there. So they prove themselves as eyewitnesses based upon the truthfulness of how they relate to what they said to the broader context of history. All right? So let's go, well, you know, preacher, that's good. You tell me the Bible and all that, but I mean, you know, is there anything else? Yes, there's extra biblical evidence. Extra biblical evidence. Now, let me ask you a question for those of us that are here. I hope that you all answer the same way I do. Do we really need extra biblical evidence to believe the Bible is true? No, we don't. But for those skeptics, we're going to look at it. For those who say, well, you know, I need something. Um, we, we, we're going to look. We're going to see what it says. Um, now, there are those who will say that we cannot believe the Bible and we cannot believe people who talk about the Bible. And here's why. Because it is written by Christians and they are biased. Okay? 
Well, why are they biased? Well, they believe that Jesus is God. They think Christianity was true. You can't trust what they say. Well, let me turn that around and say, you can't trust what non-believers say. Well, why? Well, because they're biased. Because they don't believe that Jesus was God. They don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Does that not sound silly? I mean, think about it. We don't say to them, we can't believe you because... Why should they be able to say they can't believe what we say? Because we're biased. Of course I'm biased. I believe it. But listen, let's take it a step further. What they're actually saying is that, that we really can't believe anything that anybody writes if they believe that what they write is true. My granddaughter does this all the time. Kelsey will go, I feel her now. I understand. What are you thinking? I, if, if I don't believe it's true, I'm not going to write it. If I believe it's true, I want to write it so that you understand what's true. Really. However, I don't think it's important and, um, that we, we have extra biblical things, but it's important that we're talking about it so that those who need it have it. So, because it's important and helpful to look at other documents that are written about Jesus at the same time of his life, Let's go to one that uh, perhaps maybe you've heard about. Flavius Josephus. Flavius Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived from about uh, AD 37 to AD 100. He wrote several things chronicling um, the the history of the Jewish people and all of their events. Um, When we were in Israel in January, again, we um, we were... introduced over and over again to Josephus's history of events that took place in Israel's history. One of those that I wanted to read to you particularly that I think speaks to the fact that here's the evidence that, that Jesus was there. And here's what he says. At the time of Pilate, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. He conducted, uh, his conduct was good and he was known to be uh, virtuous. Many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They, however, reported that he had appeared unto them three days after crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets had recounted uh, those wonders. In addition... To Josephus, there are nine other known non-Christian authors who talk about Jesus within 150 years of his life. From non-biblical resources, we know a lot about the life of Jesus and his disciples. Well, let's talk about another one. One that I think is just hilarious. It's called embarrassing evidence. All right, embarrassing evidence. Now, uh, we all have embarrassing things that we want forgotten, right? We don't want anybody to ever document them. We don't, you know, um, how many of you as parents um, on your child's senior year send in those embarrassing pictures or comments or quotes uh, about your children and your kids are going, I can't believe you did that. You embarrassed me so. Why did you write that down? Well, let's look at embarrassing evidence. The next point states something that historians have called principle of embarrassment. And it simply says this. Details most embarrassing to an author 
are most likely to be true. Okay? Why? In other words, you don't write down stuff that makes you look like an idiot. <laughs> makes you look bad. That could get you killed. All right? You're going to write, uh, if you're going to write history and try to convince others of things that actually include very embarrassing details about Jesus, who you're trying to portray as God, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So what type of embarrassing details might we be talking about? Well, the author of the Bible writes about themselves. We have several who write about themselves. Peter writes about himself. Uh, um, others, John writes about himself. Now, think about some of the things that they have said about themselves. Now, think about this one. Would you actually include an embarrassing moment when um, the Lord himself calls you dim-witted? Um, you know, he said, I've told you this over and over and over again. Why are you so dim-witted? He calls them a fool, and yet they write it down for you and I to look back at it and say, they were so dim-witted, boy, they make me look good. Okay? All right, how embarrassing is that? We would cut that out, would we not? We wouldn't write that about ourselves, but they did. Um, more than that, they were uncaring. Well, what do you mean they were uncaring? Well, think about it. They wrote down in Scripture, when Jesus was in the garden the night he was betrayed and to go to the cross... He is praying, sweating drops of blood, and he says to them, will you people just pray for me for a while? And he comes back, and what are they doing? They're sleeping. They're taking a rest. Jesus is weeping before the Lord, agonizing and asking them to pray for them, and they're taking a nap. Now that's an embarrassing moment, don't you think? There's also embarrassing elements about Jesus' life that are written there. You say, well, embarrassing about Jesus? Well, yeah, consider this. His own mother and brethren said to him, Jesus, come home, you're out of your mind. Jesus, your, 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 your mom and your brothers are outside, they want you to go home, they want you to stop this preaching thing because they said you've lost it, dude. Okay? Now, why would... You know, they record that Jesus has lost his mind when they're trying to portray him as the Son of God. All right? Now, let's go on. He's also called a drunkard, a friend of sinners. He's even had his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute. All of these events and so many more are recorded in the Gospels. Why? Because they are the evidence that is true. They're not just cherry-picking good things so we can say, oh, all we know is the good. No, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. I love the fact that the Word of God shows the warts and all. It's the evidence that it is true. That it's not just a made-up fiction, but it's true. And then lastly, there's the excruciating evidence. The painful evidence. For the disciples to believe these things, to say these things that they believed cost them dearly. New Testament believers abandoned their long-held sacred beliefs and adopted a new one. Now for you and I, we might think, well, that's not very revolutionary at all. I could leave the Baptist church and go join the Episcopalian church today. I could leave the Episcopalian church and go join the Baptist church today. Or I could go join the Catholic church today. I'm a former Catholic who became a Baptist, who became a preacher. We don't think it's a big deal. 
I wasn't shunned and I wasn't, you know, ostracized and I, I wasn't cast down. But in these days, to leave the Jewish faith, they left it all. For many of them, they, they lost their, their families. For many of them, they lost their employment. For many of them, they lost their social standing. For many of them, it cost them everything. They put their lives on the line. To the point that the government at some point started persecuting and running them out of town. Hang on, that might be happening again. And because of that, they were often more devout than we are today. What accounts for such a striking change except for the fact that they believed the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be true? I don't know about you, but I'm not going to take a gamble on the fate of my soul based upon a guy who's still in the ground. I need to have the evidence. I need to be convinced that what is written in here is true. They were convinced. Convinced to the point that they allowed it to cost them everything. Peter died for his convictions. It leads us to a conclusion. Many people will die for something they believe to be true. But no one dies for something they know to be a lie. I think we need to understand that the reason that the first disciples and first century believers believed the word of God because they were eyewitnesses to it. And they wrote it down so that we would have it today, over 2,000 years later. So that we could stand upon it and say, I know that I know that I know that this is true. Because there is plenty of evidence that tells me so. So let me close by sharing with you my prayer this week. My prayer this week has been for you. Each and every one of you that listen this morning. And for that person who thinks that the Bible might be a made-up book of fairy tales and false stories, that perhaps maybe something that I've said today would convict you, cause you to consider and compel you to, to look a little deeper, to dig into the Scripture, to take the time to read, to evaluate, to think about whether or not that the evidence points to one fact, truth. For the person who is on the other end of the spectrum who said, I don't have any doubts, that's great. But I hope today that you can walk away saying that I may not have had any doubts, but now I know how to defend why I believe what I believe. Now I know how to tell people why, not just because. Now you have evidence. Now you have a reason to believe. So wherever you are, it's my hope that you will take the Word of God as the lamp under your feet and the light under your path and let it be that foundation for your life. Don't check your brain at the door. Use it for what God has given to you. Use it to think. Use it to evaluate. Use it to conclude. Even the greatest of skeptics over the years eventually come to the conclusion the Bible is true whether I believe it or not. 
They may go to their grave saying, I don't believe it. But they also go to their grave saying, I know that it's true, whether I believe it or not. Wherever you find yourself today, I pray that your faith has been motivated and challenged. To those watching online, if we can help you in your understanding of Scripture in any way, how to know that it is the Word of God, how to understand how you can find salvation in it, then please call us. The information is there on the screen for you. It's there for you to use to call us. We'd be glad. Email us. Call us. We'd be glad to talk to you. For those of you that are here in the room and those of you that are outside listening, my prayer for you is that you would take the Word of God out into the world that needs the truth so desperately. We're living in a society in a time when truth is hard to find. That's why I said you need to be carrying your Bible to church. You need to be telling the people, I'm taking my truth to the place where I learn how to understand my truth. Take the Word of God with you wherever you go. Let me pray for you, and then we'll close our time of worship this morning. Father, I pray that you would just search our hearts and know us, O Lord. If there be anything within us, O Lord, that we need to confess before you, if we are struggling with any area of life, I pray that, Father, that we would come to the place where we would surrender to you. Lord, if we are dealing with the doubts and questions about the Word of God, I pray that they would... um, Go over and over again that which the Word of God says to be the evidence for why we should believe it. And then, Lord, take them through it. Help them to build their foundation of their life upon it, O Lord, so that when the storms of life come, their foundation shall be sure. They shall not be shaken. They shall not be moved. For, Lord, truly we do believe that Jesus is coming soon. It's time for us to stand up. Time for us to stand on the foundation of the Word of God. Time for us to believe. So Lord, would you go with us? Go before us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. To those of you online, thank you for worshiping with us today. May God bless you until we meet again. For those of you in the room,